Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Internet Marketing. Welcome back to the show where we give you the lowdown, the inside information and the word from the experts to help you use the internet as part of your marketing machine. Internet marketing is brought to you by AI Digital at www.ai-digital.com. In episode 39, Writing for the Web Revisited, we take another look at this subject, including how people read on the web, the proper use of links, things that every page should have, four questions you should always ask yourself about every web page you create we'll also be hearing about a new tool from google for finding out those key phrases the ones that you should be optimizing your pages for and we'll be talking to a man who has his crm system talking nicely to google adwords all coming up in internet marketing Hello everyone, this is Andy White here and uh, I'm sitting with uh, our resident expert, Mr. Daniel Rouse. And I have to apologise for the long, long delay uh, in the uh, the show from the last show. I think it, we're probably about a month late now, but we are going to catch up. And we do have a fairly good excuse. Dan got married... Yeah, I got married and went on honeymoon for a couple of weeks, which has obviously not helped uh, help things. And then getting back to work, it's been a little busy. So uh, yeah, a bit of a big life event, but it's, yeah, it's been very good, very, very good fun. Now, Dan, you know, as one married man to another, can I just, um, you know, Andy's top tips for happy marriage. We'll, we'll take this off the podcast, but ha- Andy's top tips, two main tips for happy marriage. Tip number one, your wife is always right. Okay. And tip number two, your wife is still always right. <laughs> that sounds absolutely perfect. That sounds like customer service as well. <laughs> and now, Dan, what's this about you falling off your bike? Yeah, that also didn't help as well. I was, uh, I was brutally attacked by a suicidal jogger. And uh, on Brighton Seafront. And, uh, you, are, you are joking, I hope. No, absolutely not. Well, they weren't actually suicidal. But they, they leapt out in front of my bike and I, I went headfirst into a cast iron bench, knocked myself out. So, uh, yeah, spent a bit of time in A&E with a, with a concussion. So, unfortunately, that delayed the schedule a little bit as well. So, it's been exciting times. You see, what happened, folks, is about uh, four weeks ago, I came to these offices uh, to meet Dan. And I was told that Dan has had an accident on his bike and isn't in... So you can imagine how I felt, but I subsequently found out that it was okay. Yeah, it was, it was a push bike and I was going quite slowly. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll survive to tell another tale, I think. And does that explain this, this large sort of policeman's helmet-like growth <laughs> on top of your head at the moment, Dan? That's just my hair, Andy. Oh, sorry. Your head doesn't go all the way up inside it then? No, no, it's, it's, it's the new style. 
Okay, we got um, a bit of news. Um, something about what's, what's what's this news about Google Insights then, Dan? Okay, well, quite often when we're talking about uh, search optimization, we talk about key phrase research. What are people actually searching on? So you can identify the key phrases that people are interested in and shape your search campaign accordingly. Um, we've always recommended Word Tracker in the past or niche bot which was another one that we thought was really good well just to throw the market into chaos which google obviously often do they've released something called google insights which is in a beta format at the moment so if you want to find it you go to google.com forward slash insights forward slash search and you'll find a tool there that allows you to put in search words and compare volumes for different search words see it over a period of time see what countries people were searching in, also see the variations of that term, and also see what's popular and what's growing in popularity. Hang on, Dad, is, it, is this not basically a reincarnation of Google Trends? Um, it, well, it kind of is, but it, it's very keyword-specific, but it's, it's something they've taken from Google Labs in terms of Google Trends, but they've given it a lot more to do with the keyword variants and the, the countries that it comes from, but you can also search by category. So they group keywords together as well. A lot of it is based on Google Trends, absolutely. The key difference between this and something like WordTrack or NicheBot is that WordTrack or NicheBot will give you a number, a volume of searches. So there were 55 per day searches. This gives you a comparative percentage. So it won't give you absolutes. But the key thing we always recommend is that you're working out, okay, if there's five variations of a term, which one do I get into my website? Um, do I get bed and breakfast? B&B, B ampersand B, so it's a classic example we use. You put all three into Google Insights and it will, uh, it will literally tell you which one's getting the most search and where it's getting the most search and what the variations are and what people are using on a day-to-day basis. Now, do we know, Dan, um, I've heard um, that apparently things like uh, niche bots and some of the other non-Google type um, services like this don't have full access to all of Google's database. Does... Google Insights have full access to its own database? Yeah, I mean, I would assume so. The, the, one of the key things is that the Google database was only really available to a lot of academic institutions, um, and it cost an absolute fortune. Um, it was an awful lot of money. So what we're probably seeing here is that this data used in comparison with these other tools is probably the best way of going about it. None of them really stand up on their own because what works in Google may not be the same the other search engines. It's generally going to be pretty much the same, but we can assume that they've got access to their own full set of data uh, and they are using that full set of data. When you do a search, it goes back all the way to 2004. So there's a good number of years in there in terms of what Google Insight can offer. So we've shown it to people that are doing keyword research and we've been using it ourselves and it is fantastically useful um, and it's getting better all the time. It's been a bit flaky for the last few weeks in terms of they're obviously beta testing it, but I'd certainly recommend you go and have a little play with it and seeing what you can find out. So for those who want to do their own SEO, it certainly should be added to pretty near the top of the list, the list of tools to use to work out the best keywords to use. 100% should definitely be using it. Um, just double checking yourself in terms of the keywords that you're using and making sure they are the right ones and what people are using on a day-to-day basis. Brilliant. Now, I hear there's some Twitter news as well. Twitter's been Twittering, apparently. Well, it, it's not so much complete news. I mean, the, the thing for me, I've always been quite suspicious of Twitter. Not that I don't think it's a good idea. Um, just for those that don't know, Twitter is kind of like uh, the fact you can send a text message but you can broadcast it to everyone so you're kind of bl- blogging in a text message format is what i always say so that um you can put out these very short little blogs saying what you're doing what you're interested in you can kind of have conversations you can follow other people's twitters um they can follow yours and you can publish this information as quickly as possible now this is called microblogging, is it 140 characters you can do precisely it's precisely what it is and, and i 
I just think, first of all, my impression was like, that could be a really good way of wasting an awful lot of time. Um, because again, it's like blogs, unless there's some value to it, are people going to bother reading it and how much value you can get into 140 characters? No. Although having said that, Dan, I have heard stories of, of people who wanted answers to questions and they've Twittered it and because they've got lots of followers, they've got some good answers. I completely agree. And this is it. There are lots of ways of doing this in a practical way. There's some great examples when people are traveling. They're going out and they're saying, you know, these are the things that I'm doing. I'm here. What's the best cafe to use? And all these kind of things. Now, what you can do, you can search on particular terms and see who's mentioning them. So if you go to search.twitter.com, um, put a search term in, like Google Alerts, it will tell you who's doing what on that particular term. And you can be updated on that term as well. So if you're brand monitoring on the cheap, um, you do Google Alerts. That will tell you what's going on in the search engines, discussion forums and blogs. But you can also monitor the kind of the twittering that's going on okay Um, sort of twitter vine it it is a twitter vine. it it tweets actually they're called aren't they of course so uh you can monitor the tweets that are kind of being tweeted out there and uh see what's being said but one of the key things that i thought was how can this be practically be used and there's a few different examples of this but a couple of tools that i found have been really useful first of all integrating your tweets with your blog okay now A tweet is not worth having as a blog entry, in my opinion. It doesn't work in the same way. But there is a tool for WordPress called Twitter Tools that puts a little sidebar into your WordPress blog and just shows the last few tweets that you've sent out. So it says, you know, what am I doing now? And you can see what's going on in real time. But the nice feature of the tool as well is that it will take a day's worth of tweets and it will create a blog post out of them. And you can then drop them in automatically into a Twitter folder within your blog if you want to. So not only can people see in real time what you're actually doing and um, understand you know, any number of things that you could be interested in doing, but you can also put this information together automatically into a folder. So if people want to go back historically and look at it, they can find it. But it also can be searched as part of your WordPress blog as well. So it kind of adds into your blog a new element. And I think that's actually quite a nice, useful way of doing it if what you're tweeting about in the first place is interesting in any way. And this reminds me a little bit of these uh, widgets. Um, we've used the word widgets before, haven't we, Dan? Yeah, um, that you can put in your blog or website. That's, excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> That's better. <coughs> I won't bother editing that out. Um, <laughs> uh, where was I? Oh, yes. These, um, these uh, widgets that you can put in your website or blog uh, that show your Facebook account, your LinkedIn account, blah 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 What do you think of all those? Yeah, I think, I mean, this this is a WordPress widget and it, it, it plugs into WordPress to show that stuff. I think it's great. I mean, I think if uh, widgets can work really well in the right place, if there's something useful, there's loads of Facebook widgets that are you know, really useful, Facebook applications, basically, that can tell you what eBay um, auctions you're bidding on and various things like that. But again, there's lots that are being created for the sake of it. All boils down to the same thing that we've always gone about um, in internet marketing is it's about decent quality content and useful functionality. If it's useful to the reader, at the end of the day, it's going to get used. So uh, I always say tweet with caution. If you're going to use Twitter, make sure you're doing something that's useful, but you can integrate it into your blogs really well. Now, there's one other thing that I've been using with it that I found quite fun, and it's uh, appealed to the geeky side of me. There's a tool um, for the iPhone, an iPhone application. Okay, um, iPhone applications, uh, there's lots of useful ones coming out. There's quite a few now that integrate with your WordPress blog, so you can blog directly from your iPhone. But there's one called Twitterific, which allows you to tweet from your iPhone, and you can send pictures while you're doing it directly as well. So it's quite a nice little tool that if you're tweeting as you're doing things, as you're traveling around and so on, you can then send that directly to Twitter. That will automatically post to your blog, 
and you can send pictures directly to your blog and that kind of thing as well. So we've been playing around with tweeting from the iPhone straight into the blog and so on and so forth. And it, it, it brings it alive a bit more because it's happening in a mobile kind of way. So a couple of tools there to look at, Twitter tools and Twitterific, Twitterific should I say, on the iPhone. So how do you think these can be used in the field of internet marketing, Dan? I think a lot of the stuff where you're building a blog around um, a personality brand, it's quite good to be updating people on the fly in terms of what you're doing. There's various different ways that people are using them in terms of posting questions, question answers kind of situations, um, building groups around groups of friends that are using Twitter and that kind of thing. One of the things that I found quite interesting is that some people that I follow online, um, like Seth Godin, who does his blog, and um, Timothy Ferris, whose book we're going to talk about later on, they're updating on the fly what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. You can kind of get a picture of what's going on. And they're combining what they're talking about in their blogs with the tweets they did at the time as well. So that you've got the perspective of looking back on what's happened, but the real-time commentary on it as well. And there's some interesting things being tried out in that kind of area. So I think it's, there's, there's few and far between places that I'd say Twittering is actually being hugely effective. But it's, it, it's quite fun and there's some, there's some good applications for it. Okay, Dan, well, that's fantastic. Let's talk about now the, uh, the main subject, uh, which I believe is uh, writing for the web. And I know we've been here before, haven't we, Dan? We have. I recently ran a training course um, for the staff at the Chartered Institute of Marketing. Now, the Chartered Institute of Marketing um, publish all sorts of materials through their website. And they've taken the great idea of stepping back, looking at their website and actually assessing how they're writing. What it made me realize is that we talk so much about getting traffic to the website, looking at the analytics, uh, using pay-per-click, using all these things like Twitter and blogs and all this clever stuff. But we don't ever refer back to the copy enough. So I just wanted to take a little step back and give some kind of top tips on writing for the web, why we need to think about it from such a particular perspective, and some of the key things we need to think about. Okay, brilliant. Let's get cracking. Okay, so the first thing we need to think about... There's been lots of studies and lots of information that's shown that people are very impatient when they read online, okay? We've referenced Jacob Nelson's studies a million times. Um, Go and have a look at useit.com if you want to reference those again and just do a search on writing for the web and you'll see a whole host of papers that he's written on this topic, okay? A couple of things. People don't necessarily read in a linear fashion, okay? They're not reading left to right, top to bottom. They could drop in at any page of the website and they're scanning, Okay. Do you something, Dan? Just a, a personal observation. I don't think I've ever properly read a paragraph on the web. I find it so difficult. I, I, I do tend to just scan down. I just look at the headings. Yeah, I think the key thing is that um, the BBC News website is always a great example of this, and we reference it quite regularly, is that if you're going to read down the page, you have to be completely bought in to what you've already read. So, yeah, 89% of user journeys start in a search engine. Somebody searches for something... The first thing they do is look through those results. Okay, they look through the results they get in Google, let's say. Now, yet let alone reading a whole paragraph, people only read the first two or three words in the Google results. They're scanning for the first couple of words. If those aren't right, and we've talked about this in the past in terms of those, that blue line, that title comes from your page title, and that paragraph comes from your meta description in your website. Um, they're scanning those. They're picking out. They're looking for the keywords they've searched on. They see those, they're fairly likely to click on it if it's in the top five results. They click on that and they go to the web page. When they get to the web page, they're looking for confirmation that they found the right page. And this is where the writing of the web stuff really kicks in. If the page title, the headings on the page, uh, the keywords that you've searched on 
don't stand out on that page, you get a much higher bounce rate. You get lots of people leaving straight away because they, they're so used to looking at rubbish on the web, not finding what they're looking for. They just bounce straight back. You've got a very limited amount of time, less than a second, basically, for people to scan your page. So your keywords that you're optimizing for in search optimization need to be used on the page in the headings and bolded up in the copy if possible. And I'll come back to that so that it stands out immediately what the topic of this page is. Okay. Now, how we'd write for, say, a newspaper or magazine article, we'd write in an intriguing way. We draw people in gradually. Uh, we might do some play on words and things like that. Doesn't work on the web in the same way because people are jumping into the website maybe five pages deep to look for a particular story. And if they are looking at a page and they're seeing some play on words, it's not going to reflect what they're searching for. It's a very much it does what it says on the tin kind of approach. It's very clear, concise, plain English. Um, BBC News Stories, read a news story. The heading, the headline of the news story sums up the whole story in one line. That's what you want to do with your heading on the page. Okay. Then you've got a summary in bold. Okay. Web pages that have lots of content where you have to scroll down the page should have a summary. Okay. And the summary kind of sums up everything on the page and tell you what conclusions. How long should that be, Dan? A couple of paragraphs? It's literally a paragraph shouldn't be any longer than a paragraph because then you can read that scan it and here's a summary yep i'm actually now willing to commit myself to reading down the page and scrolling down the page and should that be in a different font to the rest of it do you think i think the same font's fine but it just needs to be bold because um, it stands out as differently visually differently if you start mixing fonts it can actually be a bit of a headache on the page and the page can start to be a bit messy um, equally i kind of advise against using italic as well completely because italic on a monitor because of the shift it just looks quite pixelated so it's not a great thing okay so if you start a page off with a headline that explains what it's about or a good heading you've got a summary and summaries are suitable for some pages and not others okay but then you've got a summary then you want other ways of people being able to identify what the page is all about so as you go through the text don't be scared of splitting it into heading one or two paragraphs heading one or two paragraphs so that people can scan down the page and they can just by reading the headings work out what the key areas of text are and what the whole article is about just a quick side issue you know you, you mentioned making that first um, sort of summary paragraph bold mm. should people be using the b tag or the em tag i heard someone ask recently yeah they they should be using strong or em in the HTML, um, just because B is basically being kind of taken out of the HTML standard. Um, so use EM or strong to actually bold words up rather than, than, than the B, because Google won't give it as much weighting then as well, because it's obviously following the web standards um, to, to look at what's bold and what's important. So is that being depreciated in XHTML? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the other key things as well is that You've got to be careful when you're bolding words. You shouldn't bold any more than about one word in every three lines of text because otherwise it becomes horrible kind of jumble of all these bold words. and They don't really stand out anymore because so many are bolded. Also, it really needs to be clear that bold and your links are different things. If you're using bold to identify your links, you can't use bold within your text because people just try and click on them all the time. So you should be using underlined text for your links. Um, so don't use underline anywhere else. If you underline text on the page, people will try and click on it at the end of the day. And we've seen this happen an awful lot as well. So um, have to be quite careful of that. Okay. So you, you've got the summary. You've got the headings as you go through. The copy itself should be, and there's been several studies to prove this, should be 50% shorter than copy using print. 
okay? Because you can trim it down and trim it down. Don't take something from print and just copy and paste it online. People don't read in the same way. They want to get to the crux of the information quickly. As I've said before, people don't surf the web. It's a nonsense idea, really. They browse with an objective in mind. Now, even if that's browsing through the news, you want to be informed of what the latest headlines are. There is quite a serious objective in line there. So you've got your kind of summaries, you've got your headlines, you make your text concise. Within each paragraph, a paragraph will have a crux. There'll be something that's really important about that paragraph. You want to highlight the words in bold that bring out what that paragraph is all about. Okay. Now, is this safe, Dan? Because I, I remember even as little as, as eight months, a year ago, I were, was hearing, I, I were, I, I was hearing people say, oh no, you shouldn't sort of be bold in your keywords. That's, that's considered a bit sort of black hat these days. Is that changing? Well, I just think at the end of the day, the reason you bold a word is because it's important as part of the overall copy. Now, I don't think from having a few words bolded that Google is going to actually say, no, this is, this is too black hat. In combination with another hundred different things, that may actually be an issue. But at the end of the day, how do we use bold in everyday kind of writing? It's to really bring out what something's about and highlight it and make it clear. And I think that's fine. I think that's absolutely fine. In combination with lots of other black hat kind of techniques, it might be a bad thing because there's lots of tools that would automatically scan through things and pick out keywords and all that sort of thing. But I would suggest that on its own, it's not actually going to cause any problems. Um, The other thing you want to do within your copy is look at where your links are going and the particular links that help people carry out an action. So if you've got fill out an inquiry form, you want to have that. You know, that, that phrase actually standing out, you know, buy, sell, uh, you know, enter a competition. Those kind of words should be actually brought out as links because action words work really well as links because they give you a next step. Okay. And what that brings me on to is the fact that every single page in your website should have a call to action. Okay. This is so often mixed, missed and it's really worth going back and looking at it. A call to action in your page may be fill this for me, go and read another page. Here's more information. Even on a page where you've bought something and you completed a transaction, there should be a call to action. Are you also interested in Uh, get a discount if you buy more today? Go and find more information in this other section of the website. But if a page doesn't have a call to action, it's a waste of time, essentially, because you're not trying to actually achieve anything. Um, Even if you've informed somebody of something, you're not offering them to learn more about it. So every page should have a call to action. Okay, and essentially, when you look at a page, you need to tick off four questions. Okay, you need to tick off. What am I doing here? So that's where your heading helps you out and explains what's going on and you can quite clearly see what's going on. How do I do it? How do I go about achieving what I want to achieve? Can I just scan through this article and read it to get information? Do I need to fill something in to to achieve uh, an actual outcome objective? What's in it for me? What are the key benefits? What are your unique selling points of what you're actually trying to, to get across? Okay. And finally, where can I go next? What are my next steps? And if you look at every page from that perspective and take a step back, um, tip off those boxes, you'll actually find yourself realizing that the way we're writing for the web quite often isn't right. More often than not, when we write these, uh, we, so we, d- we deliver courses in writing for the web and we're looking at websites ourselves. You'll find that building the website is the easy bit. The copy is actually the most difficult bit. And really, the web design process should start with the content and then work, work towards the design, everything that wraps around it at the end of the day, okay? So it's really important to work out what you're trying to convey, how does it help the user, and what do they do next? 
And you'll quite often look at pages in your website and say, this page has absolutely no purpose rather than, other than stroking the ego of the company. Because the study that was done recently found that less than 1% of people read the blurb, for example, on the About Us page of a website. They, they don't really care you know, how long your company's existed and that you're a market leader and so on and so forth. And if those are important points, put them in a bullet-pointed list. Don't make people read paragraphs of text bullet point things put things in lists separate them by headings make the content really really clear um, we always do this great exercise where we get people to read um, four headlines from newspapers and try and work out what they're about okay and it's very difficult to do in a newspaper you expect a certain type of writing and it, it, it intrigues you to read more that's great but if you're on the web and you're in a search engine you land on a page that's intriguing you're going to leave because you're not going to be intrigued. You're going to be infuriated by the fact you've landed on a page and it doesn't make any sense to you. So I think going back to basics, really looking at what you're trying to achieve with the page, but also what the user is trying to achieve with the page and look at it from that perspective. Do you think there is, um, I might be going at the wrong path here, but do you think there might be a, a sort of a, te- a tendency from people who, who are trying to write their own content to try and be a bit too fancy and they need to just get back to basics fundamentals yeah i think with writing generally um very few of us are trained writers at the end of the day so unless you've studied how to write in plain english it's actually a very hard thing to do it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination when you're getting people to edit their own writing it's very difficult and the problem is that you you can't it's very hard to take a step back because you know what you're trying to say so to try and condense that down is actually quite a difficult thing to do. Quite often, a peer review works really well. You get somebody else to say, okay, trim this content down for me, pull out the main headings, what word, what word should I make into bold? And that really helps people refine down what's going on. Quite often, showing somebody that doesn't know what the page is about and doesn't necessarily understand it very clearly is the best way of doing it because that's probably what your target audience is like. So I think, yeah, people... We tend to try and be quite creative and, and fanciful in our style of writing, but really what people you're trying to do is convey information. And a blog entry that's well-written will get readers. A blog entry that solves a problem in a concise fashion will get a heck of a lot more readers because it actually achieves something. So if you're writing for the sake of writing so somebody reads it and you've got an audience, that's fine. People like your style of writing. But more often than that, that's not what we're trying to do on the web. We're trying to sell something or solve problems. Daniel, is there anything further you wish to say on this topic? No. Well, Dan, there's some great tips there on uh, writing for the web. Now, I hear we've had um, a few more emails, have we not? We have. We seem to be getting a good steady flow of emails now. And uh, there's a couple that have come in here that I just wanted to answer the questions um, that should be quite practical for people on an SEO basis. Uh, The first one here is from James Long from a company called Born. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And the question is basically about copy length um, that could be good for search. And basically James has said, please could you help me clarify whether it is preferable for SEO to have long copy on a page, some advocate 200 words plus, or as Jakob Nelson argues, keep it very short and sweet. Now, this ties in very closely what we've just been talking about of writing for the web as well. For the page functionality-wise, you want to keep it as short and sweet as is possible. You don't want to make people read lots of words, but you need to give Google enough so it can understand what your page is all about. My advice generally on this topic is that the user comes first. So if you've got a page that's got your key phrases in the page title, in the heading, in the copy in the alt tags, in the meta, in the background, you don't need to write hundreds of words. You know, in an ideal world for a search point of view, a couple of hundred words would be great. But realistically, if it's gonna ruin the user experience, there's no point because you can get hundreds of users to a website, but if it's no fun to use, then you've kind of defeated yourself already. So what I tend to try and do is make sure the pages that the uh, users are coming across all the time are as short and sharp as possible, uh, clean, easy to follow and easy to understand. You may have other pages where you want to put in longer definitions, descriptions, longer pieces, um, that when people are committed to a page and they're actually interested, they can read on more. But fundamentally, you can get over some shortcomings in on-page optimization. So your page may not be perfectly optimized in terms of the number of words and things like that if you've got plenty of links coming through to your website. So really good link building can overcome some of the imbalances that um, on-page optimization may cause. All that Google's looking for is indication of what the page is about, and then they're really looking to see how popular that is in terms of the inbound links. So users first, copy length. Ideally, you do want a bit of copy there for Google, but don't add copy just for the sake of the search engines, in my opinion. It's a bit like what you were saying earlier, wasn't it, about um, have a sort of um, summary paragraph and then maybe with a link to read more or, or a link that is formed around a sort of word that goes onto a, a relevant longer piece of text somewhere. That's absolutely right. And if you do it that, it gives the user the opportunity to basically do what they want to do. Do they want to read more or do they want to keep it short and concise? Make through the flow through the page really easy. Um, bring out the keywords. If you have got 200 words, make sure that there's a couple of headings in there. Um, there's some clear links and there's some clear calls to action. So you can have the copy, but a page will still be usable. So you can balance the two things up, but it's, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. Just remember, Jakob Nelson is coming at it from a pure usability point of view. He's not considering the search engines and a little bit of balance between the two is good. Users first, search engine second, though. Can I ask you, Dan, in your opinion, you know you have H1 and H2 and H3. What does it go up to? H4, 5, 6? 6, I believe, off the top of my head. People ever use H4, 5, and 6? No, I don't think they do, really. Um, and to be honest, how much weighting Google would give it, I don't really know. I mean, what we always advise is use an H1 for your main heading, 
and you may have a couple of H2s for subheadings, even down to H3s. I've never really built that many websites that go past an H3, um, just because we didn't really feel it was that necessary. But from a an accessibility point of view, um, they're sometimes used to to balance the weighting of the headings and things like that. Um, so, you know, if there's if you need six different levels of headings, then use them. But for example, if you've got top ten tips. Um, you might find that all top 10 of your tips are H2s because of the fact they're all of equal importance. You've got a main heading. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really go past an H3 or an H4. There may be some other people that have got experience with that, so I'd be interested if anybody's kind of tried anything different, then, then let us know. Okay, Dan, there was another email, wasn't there? What was, what was the other question? Or did you, had you not finished with James? No, no, I think that's all that James was really asking at that point. Um, the other question we've got here is from John Shipman um, at Friendly Baby, and the web address is friendlybaby.co.uk. So there's a free plug. Um, basically, flattering the podcast, which always gets you a listen and uh, gets you a mention in the podcast. What they're actually saying is that. Uh, hey, hang on, re- read out the, the, the comments. Oh, the friendly comment. The nice comment, uh, yes. This is thanks for a very informative podcast. I've been listening to it regularly since launched online business last year, and it's been very useful in launching the business. So uh, it always gets you a mention. A bit of flattery will get you everywhere in this podcast. Um, the, the key, there's two kind of questions that come in as part of SEO. Okay. So first of all, should we be optimizing our pages on a page-by-page basis or by a website overall? Okay, which is an interesting one because each page should be optimized individually for the content of that page. Where this becomes difficult is when you've got your homepage and your subsection or your category pages that you're trying to optimize for multiple terms. Okay, so um, in this case, uh, we sell mainly cloth nappies. So should every page in the site have a title starting with cloth nappies or is that inappropriate for the pages selling organic soft toys? Well, I would suggest it probably is inappropriate for the pages selling organic soft toys. What you really want to do is for each page, there'll be a set of key phrases you want to optimize for and you want to get those phrases into the page. Okay, if you have one key product, you may want to mention that in the page title at the end of the page title or near the end of the page title on every page as well. But really think of it on a page-by-page basis. When you come to the categories and the home page, the difficult thing is trimming it down. And you have to just trim it down to what the top most, probably two or three important phrases are per page. So I wouldn't suggest optimizing a page for more than two or three phrases. Okay. But then this is when it comes into the second part of the question. So what he's actually, John's asking then is what if there's several different names for a product? Okay. Um, Cloth nappies are also known as reusable nappies, washable nappies, cotton nappies, terry nappies, real nappies. Well, what you have to do is what we talked about before. You go to something like Word Tracker or to Google Insights that we talked about earlier on, put in all the variations and see which ones people are searching on. And you pick out the ones that are getting the most volume of searches. And you try and use both variations of the different words on the page at the end of the day. Um, If you used all of the variations of those phrases on one page, it'd probably read like rubbish. So the key thing is to try and optimize for the top phrases, then go through and reread the page. And if it reads like it's been optimized, you've probably gone too far. So you just need to get your your top terms in there. Um, Down are the days of having a separate page uh, dedicated to each of the separate um, sort of uh, pseudonyms for, for Terry Nappies, are, are they sort of gone and deemed to be very black hat these days? It, it's a bit of a dubious practice because what you're basically doing is creating pages for the search engines, kind of landing pages. Um, and it's not it's a bit of a frowned upon thing because, again, you're going to be repeating your content an awful lot just with different variations of the phrase in it. There's nothing actually wrong with on the page having a little box saying 
Nap is also known as, and given the four or five variations, because it, you know people may not click with that particular term. Different people will come at it from a different point of view. So think of it from the user point of view and what you can give the user that's also going to help the search engines at the end of the day. So I think that's a, a very good question because it's quite a practical one that comes across quite regularly. Brilliant. And we've had a comment, uh, I believe. We have. Um, again, flattery gets you everywhere. Uh, it's a comment here from Louise Payne. Uh, Louise is um, working on a couple of... She's communication managers for the largest government ministry. So it's brighterfutures.gov.ky in the Cayman Islands. Um, so our, really, our, our listenership is getting around the world quite nicely now. Um, and again, the Cayman Islands website is caymanislands.ky if you want to have a look at that. Um, what they're basically saying is that, you know, the technology is really kind of uh, changing how they're working, but they're particularly interested in um, growing the small Caribbean markets um, and looking at how small regions, geographic regions can actually be tapped into by digital marketing. Now, this is a topic we could go into in quite a length, so I'm going to try and bring this up in a future podcast. But I think it's quite a valid thing in that um, you can go for big markets, big mass markets, but focusing on niche markets, there's also something that's really, really strong. And we've talked about that in the past. And geographical targeting, particularly in pay-per-click advertising now, which is much easier to do, can give you really, really good results. So um, thank you for the, uh, the really kind of uh, positive comments that we've, we've had feedback from, particularly from Louise. That's great. And uh, I will go into that localized marketing thing a bit more in the future, I think. And if I'm ever in the Cayman Islands, I'll pop in for a coffee. That sounds like a very good idea. In fact, uh, maybe we should be invited for a coffee and then uh, maybe we could go over that. That'd be good. Is that, is that a hint, Dan? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Well, Daniel Rouse, uh, thank you very, very much for your, for your insights uh, on this fine day. So we're now going to finish off uh, with an interview I did with Kieran Rogers, or at least part one of an interview I did with Kieran Rogers. Tell us a little bit about Kieran, Dan. Um, Kieran uh, works for the marketing of somewhere called UKSA, which is the UK Sailing Association. Um, and they're based on the Isle of Wight. And they're a charitable trust that does lots of fantastic things. Basically, they provide lots of opportunities for young people to go and try sailing for a day. They do qualifications for people who want to be yacht masters. Um, But it's also up on a charitable basis so that you give these opportunities to young people, expands their confidence, not necessarily to get them into sailing for a a whole kind of lifetime, but to kind of build the confidence. And I'm sure that Kieran will explain what they do an awful lot better than me. But what happened is I went along there for a day to do a kind of strategic consultancy with them, have a look through their digital marketing and give them some advice on what they could actually do better and how they could achieve these things and kind of achieve their objectives through digital marketing. What I found was that I probably uh, learned as much on that day as I actually gave, but we're not going to tell Kieran that because otherwise he might want some of his money back. But um, yeah, literally they were doing some really clever stuff. And I, and I thought that it's all stuff I've come across before, but some of it, it's just, it was being brought together in a really good way. There's some great stuff with integration into customer relationship management and so on. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity um, for Kieran to talk about what they've done, how they've approached it and what results they've got from it. Fantastic. Well, here's part one of that interview just coming up now. Enjoy. Well, I'm talking to Kieran Rogers of UKSA, which is a sailing charity. Is that right, uh, Kieran? Yeah, yeah, we are. And you're based in the Isle of Wight? You are based in Cowes in the Isle of Wight. And for those of you that don't live in the UK, the Isle of Wight is, is, uh, is, is separated from the UK mainland. It sort of hangs right off the very bottom and it's separated by a stretch of water called the Solent, is that correct? It is, yeah. Great, great place for a sailing school because the Solent's a very challenging sailing place. Is it? Why is that? Is that because there's lots of currents going through it? Yeah, you have. I mean, you, you, you've got the, the sort of up to six knots of tide rushing through uh, in various directions at different points in the day. So 
so, kind of really adds to the challenge. So it's not a good idea to try and swim across to the Isle of Wight then? I, I wouldn't recommend it. I know the ferry fares are quite high, but, you know, it's, it's just not a good saving. No, yeah. no. <laughs> it's best to get here alive. Now, you're, you're a sailing charity then, and I'm very interested in the way that you're using... You're using some um, online software, aren't you, called Salesforce for your CRM? Yeah. And I believe that you've, uh, uh, you're using it in a very sort of close way with um, Google AdWords. Tell us about that. Okay, well, I mean, the, the thing we use is called Salesforce.com. It's uh, an online customer relationship management system. And uh, we're making use of it because as a charity, we get, we get a donation of free licenses for it. Mm. And the, the real thing that, that got me using it was about six years ago, I was really, uh, we were just getting into online advertising and we had um, Google, uh, we were getting into Google AdWords and, 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 and Yahoo. Uh, we're running some, some, some big online advertising services at the time. And we really wanted to find a way of not just being able to see who had clicked on our adverts um but uh, the systems would always give you numbers uh, and how many click-throughs that you'd have i actually wanted to be able to track uh, that business right the way through to to booking uh and and possibly subsequent bookings and it's a really really hard thing to do um and uh one of the things i love about uh, the uh, online application we use um salesforce.com is there was a, a free bolt-on uh, that we got hold of called um salesforce for google adwords yeah. And what that enables us to do is to uh, track all of our AdWord responses through to actual inquiries. Um, so if you were to go on to AdWords and respond to uh, one of the many uh, AdWords campaigns that we've got up there, um, uh, if you were to actually ask for a, a prospectus uh, off, the, off the back of following that AdWord um, at any stage, I would know which AdWord campaign you'd come from, um, which is really, really useful. Obviously, one of the big challenges with AdWords is knowing how much money to assign to various campaigns. Um, as a charity, we've got quite a limited budget, so um, I want to make sure that we get the best return on our investment. Um, and actually being able to track through uh, to an actual booking um, uh, within our system was, was extremely useful. Um, I, think, I think it's probably a little bit easier if you just sell stuff online, uh, because obviously you can integrate that into your Google AdWords uh, campaigns. But mm. for us, we have a... We, we do a lot of um, career retraining for, for people in the industry. So you can come to UKSA and you can retrain to become a, a yacht skipper or a, a water sports instructor. And um, these programs will range anything from uh, £1,250 to, to £23,000, depending on, on what you book with us. And uh, most people won't just kind of rock up into an online shop and, and make a purchase like that. It's like, yeah, £23,000, I'll have three of those, please. Um <laughs> You know, it, it takes a little bit of um, contemplation and, and, and mulling over. And um, that's one of the great things about this system. It enables people to uh, mull over and I can still kind of track track uh, what success the various campaigns have had. Now, before we get into the details of this, Kieran, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just quite interested because um, software as a service, of which Salesforce.com is an example, yeah. seems to be gradually gaining popularity not as fast as i thought it might do but it does seem to be gradually gaining popularity but one of the um one of the big things that i hear a lot of companies kind of worry about with online services is data protection and stuff like that yeah what yeah. what's your attitude to that how did you sort of um reconcile that in your mind i oh, when we first started using it yeah really uneasy about it i had lots of awkward questions um about it actually it's just a mindset you need to kind of get over yourself with. Um, 
I, I draw a parallel with the difference between keeping, keeping money in a bank or stuffing it under your mattress of yeah. your own making. Mm. Um, and, you know, actually, when you look at the, the, the system we use, Salesforce, and they, they say they're not in the kind of application business. They say they're in the trust business. And, and, and that, that's primarily why. Because I think that's the big uh, concern people have. Um, the irony is when you look at the systems that we were using uh, previous to using Salesforce, um, we had access databases which were backed up uh, on tape um, and taken home by the guy from finance once every other day yep. um, to, to cover every eventuality. Um, now, what I've moved on to is a, a, a platform which is obviously online, but they have uh, backup centers in three major continents around the world, all mirrored. Right. Yeah, um, they have a ninety-nine point nine percent uptime uh, uh, kind of track record. Yeah, um, there's a site called trust.salesforce.com which you can go on and actually get their latest stats, um, which they've they've reopened and, and published. So it's, I would say, it's extremely secure and yeah. far far more secure than than your own kind of internal systems could ever be. Um, yes. and the the other nice thing is that they're backing up. Uh, my data far more often than I could hit the save button. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, there, there really isn't an issue. And if you take that whole analogy of, well, you know, are you better off uh, building your own vault and keeping your money safe? Or is it best to actually go with a professional service provider who uh, uh, spend and invest millions of pounds mm. on your security? Um, you know, you wouldn't have any arguments that the, the banks would win every time. That's a very good way of putting it, actually, because I never really thought of it in that way, sort of comparing it to a bank. Now, how does this actually work? I know it's difficult to describe to the listeners because it, 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 we're audio, we're not video. Yeah. But essentially, in, in, in sort of a very generic way, because I'm, I'm interested also for listeners who are thinking of, of maybe trying to implement this, but maybe not using Salesforce, maybe they're using some other sort of online um, service. Roughly, how does it work? Well, I wouldn't know about the other online services because like I've got this and it works really well. But um, essentially, you with, with Salesforce.com, it's a it's, they developed it as a platform. So think of it not just as a service, but something you can actually develop software on. Um, but the software is all online. Mm. Um, they have a thing called the App Exchange, which you can bolt in kind of. Uh, extra bits to your database, really. And they're all things that hundreds of other companies have developed and made available. Some of them you pay for, some of them are free. Um, the, the Google AdWords for Salesforce is, is one of the free ones. Um, and you, you basically you install it into your salesforce.com instance. Um, it literally takes a, a couple of clicks of your button and it's all there. And they'll give you a little bit of code which you have to pop onto the bottom of all of your uh, landing pages. So wherever, basically, your landing pages are your pages which you you link to your AdWords campaign. So if I clicked on an AdWord uh, advert within Google, uh, it, this would be the page that uh, my advert would take you through to. So the, the little mm-hmm. bit of code uh, for Salesforce for Google AdWords goes onto the very bottom of that page. And it goes into the landing page, does it, Kieran? Goes into the landing page. I'm with you. And, yeah. uh, and the whole system takes care of the rest, really. Um, you've okay. got to. Uh, there's a feature in Salesforce called Dashboards, which gives you a graphical representation of all of your data. And the Salesforce or Google AdWords comes with a ready prepared dashboard. So I have lots of lovely dials and graphs showing how various campaigns are, are doing, what my top five keywords are, um, how much money they've generated 
And because it's integrating with my CRM package, it's not just how many closed sales each campaign has generated, but how many sales are sort of still in the pipeline. So we might have recognized uh, something as an opportunity but hasn't yet closed, mm. i.e. you haven't yet bought the product. And I could see how much is, um, is, is about to come through. Um, very useful for cash flow forecasting as well, obviously. With, with yeah, and, and I'm assuming... Re- Sorry, sorry, Kieran, carry on. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it's just a really nice integration. Um, I've always had difficulty with previous databases with, you know, one system talking with the other. Mm. Um, and it was a big problem getting um, our website talking with the, the, the database until we started uh, using this online platform. Mm. Uh, the thing comes with... Very easy to build a web, they call them a web to lead form. Um, so I can literally select any fields within my, my database um, that I want to make uh, available on my website um, and uh, create a web to lead form so that when you fill out the various fields that I've selected, um, it goes straight into my, to my customer relationship management database and, and gets That's dealt interesting. with there. Yeah, I mean, so it, what sort us, of data are you collecting, Kieran, like that? Well, primarily names, addresses, telephone numbers, and, and which course you're interested in. Uh, yeah. Primarily, we, we offer training for people. Um, but again, that was a big problem that we faced. We used to have um, standard HTML forms, which would email uh, our sales team. Um, but as uh, we got really into online advertising and, and AdWords campaigns, um, we saw the level of inquiry go up and up and up. Mm. And we were just swamped. Um, because what we're having to do is to print out emails and manually type them into the to the database system. Yes, um, yes. So effectively what's nice about this is it enables my customers to to, to fill out all their own requests. They're, mm. they're doing quite a lot of the legwork for, for us. Um, and because we can customize the web-to-lead forms, um, we include um, all sorts of qualifying questions on our forms, like, you know, perhaps, when are you looking to do a course next month, next three months, next six months? Uh, you know how you can fund the course? Mm. Um, do you know which course you're interested in? All of those things help qualify somebody who's really very keen to, to do something quite quickly uh, to somebody who's just having a little bit of a, of a daydream and, and, and perhaps you know, just exploring a few ideas. Um, I love this idea of, of, of automation that you've got there. Obviously, presumably, when this information comes into the CRM system, yeah. the CRM system is then sort of doing things to help you waft these people further into the sales funnel. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and the whole thing integrates with um, the ability to email out uh, campaigns to, to yeah. people that fulfill certain criteria. Um, and much of this can be automated. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> I'm... I'm well-renowned within our organization for being very tight-fisted with money. But I work for charities, my oh. justification. And um, <laughs> that was one of the other things I liked about it was it, the, the things very drag-and-drop. You know, you don't need lots of coding knowledge to mm. automate processes um, and to customize things the way you like them. And, you know, before I started using this, we would very often pay £60 an hour to have um, somebody code in access or, or, mm. or various applications we're using. And I don't have that anymore, which is, which is nice. Yeah. Hmm. I can think of a few organisations I know that could do with a system similar to this. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I, I guess you'll have guessed. I'm. Um, I'll hold my hand up. I'm a big Salesforce fan. Um, yeah. But it's because it's a bloody useful tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not through any weird uh, uh, obsession I have with the, the thing. It just mm. helps us work more efficiently. Um, and what it's given us as a charity, uh, there's no way I could have afforded to develop something like this. Um, with the budgets that I work on, but mm. um, through the 
donation of their licenses to a non-profit. Um, they've given us a, a world-class Rolls-Royce level tool um, uh, to, to use. And, it, and that's all part of their corporate social responsibility. You know, they're really interested in, in making the world a better place as well as making a profit. So yeah, ties in nicely. Hmm. Well, it sounds like a like a good system. Um, you know, lo- a sort of binding in the uh, the sort of AdWord campaign to your CRM system, and it certainly. I wonder if there's any other charities listening out there that might want to consider this. Yeah, I mean, if they are, um, another hat that I wear. I run a uh, a non profit group for charities um, who make use of Salesforce. Um, ah. So uh, yes, um, log on to um, Salesforce and. Uh, Look up the UK non-profit group um, and join in. It's a free group. We meet once every six weeks in London and um, we talk about stuff like this. So, um, yeah, the aim is to help and encourage people to get the most out of the application. Well, listen, Kieran, thank you so much for that. What we're going to do is we're actually going to make uh, two um, little sessions out of this. So I'll, I'll say goodbye now, but we'll have part two in the next episode of Internet Marketing. So just before we go, Kieran, if people want to have a look at your website, what's the uh, URL? Uh, you can go to www.uksa.org. Fantastic. Kieran Rogers of UKSA, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Now, we would really like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, send them to info at ai digital. Com, and feel free to send in mp3 files as well and we'll play them if you're a subscriber we'd like to thank you for your valuable time if you haven't subscribed yet and you'd like this show delivered to your earbuds automatically you can find internet marketing on itunes just search under the business and marketing and management categories or you can find us at feedburner at feeds.feedburner.com slash academy im we'd also encourage you to leave comments on itunes Well, this is Andy White signing off, wishing you the best until we see you next time on Internet Marketing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.